Hi everyone, welcome to Design Development brought to you by H&O Structural Engineering. This is your hub to learn direct from top performers in real estate development, design, and construction. I'm your host, Renz Hayes, co-founder of H&O, lifelong learner, and I'm obsessed with high-powered organizations and the leaders that guide them. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, I can't thank you enough. Let's go. My pleasure to introduce today's guest, Keith Monahan. Keith is the Director of Operations at Sean Lee Construction. They're a prominent open shop framing company in the greater Boston area. They do a ton of large-scale multifamily work. He's a great person to talk to to learn the ins and outs, what are the challenges, what drives cost in wood framing that's impacting a lot of people in the multifamily investment space and the design space. So really a good conversation for anyone in the industry to listen to. Big takeaway from this conversation is really highlighting what career opportunities are out there in the trades. How big of a problem is the labor shortage? But for anyone that's interested in building, I, I for one love Keith's career. He started in the field. He was a framer, worked his way through estimating to project management to ultimately the director of operations. Is a great career story to inspire anyone in the trades to see what's possible. And the big message here is invest in, in growing yourself, invest in learning on a day-to-day -day basis, find a way to consistently grow, see what opportunities are out there. Your core skill set just makes up one part of what you do. Building complementary skill sets is what elevates your value. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you have a college degree, whether you don't. That one habit, that one realization will transform your career and your earning potential. Without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Keith Monahan. Please join me in welcoming Keith Monahan. Keith, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Happy to be here. Keith is the director of operations at Sean Lee Construction. This is the first framing company and subcontractor we've had here on design development. I'm really excited to jump in. Uh, the The wood industry, I feel like, has exploded in, since especially 2018. Obviously, it's been a primary building, single-family homes and multifamily for, for the test of time, but it's really been a boom, especially in the greater Boston, New England area for, for the greater part of the last decade. And Keith and his team have been a big part of it. Keith, could you tell us a little bit about Sean Lee and give us a sense of your, your company size and scale? So actually, first, honored to be first subcontractor. I've seen plenty of these with architects and engineers and developers and really honored to put out the word for the subcontractors too. So Sean Lee was founded in 1986 by a guy named John Adams. He started out working for Plumhouse, actually, who's now we're actually doing work for them. They've become a general contractor, construction manager. So, yep. So coming from that company, it was founded on Merit Shop Builds Best is their slogan. We followed in suit. We're an open shop wood frame contractor. We do anything from a small convenience store or a Starbucks restaurant type thing to multiple hundred thousand square foot buildings, you know, apartment complexes, assisted living facilities, hotels, that nature. Lately, we've been doing anywhere from 40 to $50 million a year in revenue and a little tough, rocky road through COVID, but kind of struggled through that. And the, the after effects of COVID were really a little bit tougher. 2020 was kind of par for the course. 2021, 2022 were a little bit rockier, but yeah, so pretty big volume, tough to keep a handle on all of it because I mean, there's multiple jobs going on at once. We have a staff of five project managers, uh, multiple field superintendents, and about 130 people in total actually employed by Sean Lee. And so what is that? Is that over 100 framers on your crew? Yep. 
So we have offices in Plainville, Massachusetts and Naugatuck, Connecticut. And typically you'll see a lot of wood framing use subcontractors. We really pride ourselves on using our own employees and having that real, you know, tight company feel. We'll, we'll use subcontractors occasionally, but really we, we try to focus it on our own staff and, and that way we really have, you know, full control of the project and the everything from management to the, the guy knocking down braces and, and cleaning up and pushing the broom. Yeah, I like that organizational strategy at, at that scale, running, framing, doing 40, 50 million a year over 100 framers. That's a lot of work that you get. It takes a lot of work to keep that engine fed to make sure every framer has a place to go. Definitely. We actually had ballooned, I think, in the probably early 2000s, um, say 2005 or so. We were up to over 600 framers in the field. Um, now, that was that was actually while I was back in the field. So that was kind of in the forest looking at the rest of the trees. So I didn't really. So that was 2005, 2006? Yeah. I was a little outside of, say, the wood construction world in 2005, 2006. How does that compare to the last, say, five years? If you guys were running 600 people, like what what was the big boom back then? Was it multifamily or? Yep. Uh, mostly multifamily. There was there was always a mix, but in general, it was multifamily. We we had guys, a separate company called North Atlantic Brandon that was down in the mid-Atlantic area, kind of New Jersey, Maryland, that type of thing. But all in all, I think the bulk was really up in Massachusetts. But, you know, like I said, I was I was a framer in the field and, and one of those 600 at that point. So my concept of what we actually did on the whole, it was pretty limited. You know, I was focused on my one job, my one building, my one section. So a little bit of a different feel than what we have right now. I think with the with the crash and the and the downturn in 2008-9, that's really where we kind of resized and, and realized that, you know, maybe maybe that much volume wasn't a good thing. I think the margins weren't quite there, but the volume was. So, you know, turning that in, yeah, into a little smaller, smaller group of guys and that way you can focus on making more margin on, on less volume and, and making it work that way, you know? Yeah, I love that you started in in the field as a framer and have worked at, you're now the director of operations at Sean Lee. And we're going to dive through that career journey. I think it's going to be something anybody in, in the field, in the subcontractor world is going to want to hear. Before we get down that path, I want to understand the history of Sean Lee. You mentioned, what was this company out of the mid-Atlantic? Did you used to own another branch where you partnered with them? How did that relationship work back then? So it kind of came in a little bit of a roundabout way in the... I guess in the early 2000s, we were actually acquired by a company called Universal Forest Products. They're now known as UFP Industries. So when we were acquired by them, they were mostly in the business of doing preservative treated wood and building components, you know, prefabricated wall panels, prefabricated floor and roof trusses, engineered wood product sales. So when we came on board with them, it was kind of a little bit of a missing link of, you know, the actual installers who were, who were using their products. So it kind of gave them an, an outlet for their materials. And also by actually, you know, working with the people who were installing it, it allowed them to kind of fine tune it as well and improve on the product by, you know, having the people boots on the ground, telling them, all right, this doesn't really work so well. Maybe you could change this up. So it was a good symbiotic relationship, but, but so they had a few framing operations, ours included. They actually purchased Shepherdville Construction, which is our sister company. They do interior finish, millwork and stuff like that. So the, the company down 
further south. They competed in the D.C. market, the Baltimore market, New Jersey area. So, but yeah, so there was always kind of the... So UFP purchased your your company. So they purchased Sean Lee in the early 2000s, and they also acquired another company down there. So how does that partnership, if they own framing companies doing similar work in different regions of the United States, do they create the space for your teams to to share lessons learned, share systems, optimize together, share resources? How does that alliance work? Yeah, so it's kind of a natural thing. There's actually right now, so that that company is no longer, but there is another wood frame company down in uh, the Burlington, North Carolina area. So it's really kind of a, a natural way that the information is spread. You know, they'll, we'll hear through the grapevine kind of through, you know, their sales team and their operations team. You know, they're doing this down here, so maybe we could try it out up here, you know, and, and it, information just kind of flows freely. We don't really work directly with, with the other framers per se, but but there's always the connection with the, the larger management team that kind of connects the dots and, and pulls pieces together. Do you have a sense of construction costs, especially like in your industry? So wood framing, multifamily, like just a general, how much more affordable or cost effective is construction down in North Carolina versus the greater Boston area? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Like what's the labor difference? I'm not sure really off the top of my head. I don't get involved with their pricing, but I got to assume it's at least 10 to 15 percent. I think the, the the labor force in particular is where a lot of the cost savings are uh, down there. Cost of living is just completely different, so they can be at a... Yep. And then also, they'll use slightly different uh, products and species than us. So, you know, proximity to southern pine mills, say, they'll use a lot of southern yellow pine down there, where up here we'll use uh, SPF for most of our framing materials. So there's maybe a little bit of a benefit there as well with their, their sheathing. And, you know, there's a lot of southern pine sheathing that's out there too. So that product's a little bit more cost effective, and then transportation's not as big of a hurdle. So that can be almost 5% right there, just in transportation costs. Yeah, I mean, the, the, on the material side of things, but yeah, really, it's really all soup to nuts, you know, the labor and the materials all combined. Huge benefit, and I think you see it in, in the, the bigger boom that's kind of happening down there right now. I mean, the Carolinas are going crazy right now with a lot of single family. Um, a lot of people are retiring there, and people are realizing, you know, it's more cost-effective living down there. So I think a lot of come here's, as you would call them, transplants from maybe up here. But yeah, the retirement is a big aspect of it too, I think. But um, but see a lot of multifamily down there too, in addition to the single family. Let's talk about the challenges you face in wood construction and as a subcontractor in the industry. And I think we can focus on, I call it anything with a bed, the multifamily, which is condos, apartments, um, senior living, student housing, anything with a wood framed bed unit. So it's obviously a critical element wood frame construction for any kind of multifamily product is the most cost effective means to create that space which is why it's so prevalent especially in the greater boston area and throughout the country what i've learned being in the industry not all not all architects are created equal not all designs are created equal site conditions play a major part and i would say also not all framers are created equal so there's a lot of different nuances to that. And I think sharing your insights from a well-respected framing company in the greater Boston area would be a really good conversation for today. So if we could talk through some of the, the talking points, the challenges you guys face in the wood industry and as a subcontractor, and I think I'll kick off one. We mentioned 
access and site logistics. I think if that, if that's a key one, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, that's that's a, a really big factor that I think may be overlooked from time to time, depending on whether it's a, a newer company, uh, a little bit less experienced. But what we're seeing nowadays with you know stuff that's closer proximity to to urban areas, the urban infill projects, uh, we joke about it. We call them the post, postage stamps. You know, there's a real focus to really utilize every square inch of the the given parcel you know and and what that does is it makes it tough because ideally you know we have multiple levels of walls floor trusses walls floor trusses all the way up to the roof to get that up there we need equipment so fitting a crane on site isn't always an option i'd say the first time we used tower cranes was probably in 2016 2017 and up until that point you know, it wasn't even a question. We'd, we'd, we'd get these postage stamp type sites and, and we'd get the crane to hit as far as we possibly could. And then it was all horsepower to get it into its final place, you know? So lumping trusses down hallways only to bring them into a unit and set them in place because we were really, you know, unaware of what a tower crane could do. So it was such a foreign thing to us. We're used to, you know, multiple acre sites with eight of the same building. So, you know, you can pull a crane up wherever you please. So nowadays it's getting tougher and tougher. Uh, land comes at a premium and, and wherever it is, there's already something built all the way around it. So being able to, to navigate within the site just to set all the, all the products that were dropping, the components, the trusses, the beams, walls and everything, lifts of sheathing and lumber. It's really made us have to kind of rethink how we do it. And on these jobs, we, we can approach it from a better point of view now because we've got a few under our belt with tower crane usage. It's just more and more common. I think down kind of mid-Atlantic, they had used it for, for quite some time. They had the double donut style buildings and they were used to it. I think Texas donut. Yep. So the, you know, in those cases, I think the general contractor would usually pick up the tower crane and then divide the cost among the trades. I mean, they'd use it for concrete, for wood, for roofing, everything. Up here, it's a little bit different model where, you know, we'll take all of our equipment and then, you know, we might share it here and there with other trades. But, but yeah, it just really created a, a whole new aspect of, of a challenge to where, you know, if maybe a little bit of space could be reserved for equipment, you know, the initial cost might come down, but I assume it, it pays off in the end to, to increase the amount of unit space that you have. So it's you can see the reason. I'll, I'll share some perspective. Let's these posted stamp sites. They're more, I would say, urban infill. And you're absolutely right. Like the land and the demand for, say, housing is so high. You, you, the goal of any developer, and really to make the math work, you have to maximize the number of units on each site. So those problems aren't by necessarily choice, but they're by necessity to create a viable development. So you can run into construction logistics where you're parking trailers or cranes in the street and you have cop details. The other piece is it leads to generally very complicated structures. When you have a big sprawling site, couple hundred unit building, you're generally going to find more consistency in your framing details. You're going to be able to stack walls and you're going to do that for multiple floors. Whereas in an urban infill, the stuff, the, the buildings generally aren't as big and then they can become what I would say cookie cutter where your units don't quite stack. You have transfers and framing. You have complicated steel transfer podiums. You'll have cantilevers and overhangs to create the space. And those numbers can really add up, which is comes to my next point is the whole cost per square foot conversation. Cost per square foot's a good way to have like a general sense of 
but it's not necessarily, it's not a silver bullet for pricing wood construction. You can't say wood construction's 25 or 30 or $35 a square foot. It's very project specific. How do you guys tackle that at Sean Lee? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. And to your point of tackling the engineering based on the, the shape of the building, you know, it's kind of tough for us, but I can see it being tough for you as well. You know, sometimes the designs are complicated and, and then you're there to, to figure out how it's actually going to stand up and, and, and work. So for us, we have to look at every last part and piece of it from logistics to the design. For cost, it used to be a narrower range. You know, you'd see large multifamily being 17 bucks a square foot and then say a townhouse, which is tends to be on the more expensive side, that would run, you know, 24, 25 bucks a square foot. Those numbers would, people would drool for those numbers today. We would too. We'd love to be able to pass them along. So once COVID hit and uh, the lumber market really kind of went out of control, those numbers right now, I think we're seeing typically a multifamily building, you know, with no kind of extra factors, you know, just your, your basic multifamily with metal stud interior partitions. You can get down into the 22, 23. Don't quote me on that. The 22 is on the light. We're carrying in the pro forma. <laughs> Prefer the leakage interior partition walls? Yeah, definitely. It's cost effective. It's easy. The labor, the material, like what makes it advantageous for you? So it's marginally quicker for us if we're just putting up corridor walls, demising walls, and intermediate bearing walls. The but the speed of it really isn't isn't the key. It's all the blocking that goes within the walls. So and the the trueness of the walls. Wood the natural product, organic product, and it's going to do what it wants to do once it dries out and settles. So you'll find you know some bone studs here and there, and it can be. It can be a little bit of a drag to have to constantly go back and, and pull them and straighten them and, and stuff like that. So the finished product and less in and out time within the units themselves, um, that's really why we would prefer to see metal stud. I think the, the, the cost difference has flip-flopped over the past, say, 10 years, probably flip-flopped multiple times, actually, depending on the, the price of metal and the price of wood. But no, we, we would always prefer it. I think that the product is a little bit more true, and then it takes the blocking burden off of us too. That's a selfish, a selfish want right there. But if that has cost savings too for for anybody, and I think having it true and less congestion in the wall probably helps a lot of trades. So then you know that's on the light side, say twenty two, twenty three bucks a square foot for a, a large apartment building. But I mean, townhomes today can get up into the 30s, you know, mid 30s, high 30s isn't out of the question. What makes a townhome more expensive? Is it just the volume? It's not the same scale? Is there generally more complexity? What drives the difference between the two from your perspective? So there's a couple key points. Number one, with the townhomes, you have typically have a stair in every unit and the stairs are time consuming. Find that they, they do actually drive the price up a fair amount. And then there's also, so there's a benefit to having a four-story or five-story building when you're looking at it as a price per square foot point of view. So a two-story or a three-story townhome, basically the roof is generally the most expensive part of the building. So if you only have two stories to spread that high cost of the roof over, then your price per square foot is going to kind of skyrocket. Whereas if you have four stories of floor space that you're using your price per square foot to base off of, then that high roof price gets watered down and, and narrowed down by having the multiple floors. So that's really, you know, it's it's not necessarily the, the end cost, but the cost per square foot does, it can be striking the, the difference between say a four-story flat roof and a, 
a pitched roof to sort out home. And that's why cost per square foot is can be such a dangerous metric. We, you can have the same thing. Let's say those wood buildings are on a podium or you start talking about the foundation cost. Foundation cost, it depends on how many floors you're stacking on. Like it, the cost per square foot, the impact of the foundation or the earthwork is going to be less the taller the building it is. Yeah. yeah, it's an important point that I think some people might not fully capture in budgeting, but once you start to see it a few times and you can realize how the cost varies, it's you know it's an important point in in determining that initial budget. And even if we just talk through the added complexity, you mentioned having a stair in every single unit in a townhouse. Not only do you have to frame, rough frame the stair, so the stringers and the treads and get that built, but that also means you're interrupting your floor framing from just being consistent bearing wall to bearing wall. In these big multifamily buildings, you're generally laying down the same length truss on the same bearing walls across the width of the building, or at least half the building. But in a townhouse, you're going to be dealing with different like joists. You're going to be introducing beams and girders to shorten and support those to create the stair opening for the unit. Right? Yeah, the hangers to attach the trusses and say if we're going with trusses, trusses to the beams. Truss pricing itself actually suffers as a result because they're they're big on using a thing called price quantity, which is to say that you know a building with trusses that run from quarter to exterior, all one type of truss, save for maybe a few point loads here and there the cost is going to benefit because if they're just creating one length or ideally one type of truss, I mean, they can just crank those out. They're not resetting the jigs and, and reshuffling. You know, they're going to really fine tune that and, and be able to crank them out. Whereas a different type of building, if you go demising to demising and you have multiple different unit widths, you have endless different truss types, which, you know, affects the truss pricing, but it also affects the, the labor in the field because rather than just throwing up bundles of all the same truss and spreading them out, now you're having to kind of shake them out and see see what goes where. And, and it can be a little bit of a time suck out in the field for sure. Could you talk about, let's let's say large scale multifamily, like two, bu- two buildings largely created equal other than let's say what details in those buildings are cost drivers that make one more complicated or more costly than another? It, it's kind of tough. I mean, you see so many different designs from architects and engineers. Um, obviously, the initial driver, I think, is the overall architectural feel of the building. You know, you look at, I always look at it kind of like this, like you look at Notre Dame and you look at the Alamo, and if they were the same size, you could tell which one's going to be the more cost-effective one. You know, it's less intricate, a little bit more straightforward. So I think the big driver is architectural details, whether it be uh, build-outs on the facade or bump outs, which create cantilevers and overhangs and stuff like that, you know, ornate details can really drive it. And then by extension, that translates to, you know, the structural engineer having to figure out a way to actually bring that into being, you know, cantilever projections from buildings. I think a lot of people might not look at that as being a driver of cost, but you have to transfer all that load path back into the building. It's it's not maybe as easy as it just looks at a from an architectural rendering point of view. So, but then beyond that, there's, you know, multiple different engineers that will look at it a different way. And, you know, some may not be quite as efficient as others. And it's kind of tough to tell, but once you get a sense of how everyone works, um, you can kind of get a a picture of where you're going to be in the end. I think there's a lot of maybe safety factors that go into it from, from some engineers point of views. And, you know, I, I could see that for sure. But it's it's really all about their mentality and their their tape on it. There's nuances and relationships that are important. I think wood construction 
especially, it's pretty easy for details to add up to a few dollars a square foot that really change the financial impact on a building. That's where having a relationship with somebody like you and Sean Lee is really important to make sure that the design is in a cost-effective way to, to generate the result that we all want for the building. Yeah, huge key to that too is the engineer being open-minded too. You know, obviously a lot of time goes into these designs and sometimes we can come across as a little bit of a slight when we say, oh, well, on this other building, we saw this. You know, some people can take great offense to that and, and, and rightfully so. Delivery is very important, I'll say from the other side. Delivery is important in the context and it's kind of, you got to like lower that zone of resistance whenever you're communicating over the table right? Yep. The the goal is to get the best result for the job. And it'd be silly for us on the design side to not listen to the experts that are literally putting these things together day after day. Well, um, I, I said this phrase multiple times. I'm not an engineer, but, and, you know, very willing to admit that, but, you know, we, we have smooth certain methods work. Uh, the buildings are still standing. I mean, they use wooden pegs in half the houses I grew up in from the 1700s. And those suckers are still standing, you know? So it, it, it's, it's tough to kind of broach that subject, but it's an important part of it to, to at least have a conversation like, can we do it this way? And, and having an open mind all around the table is definitely a huge key to that. We encourage those conversations for sure. And I, I would encourage everyone in the industry to have those conversations. But some, some of your points there, I would say a phrase that can often ruffle feathers is like, I've been doing it this way for 30 years. It's like, well, you've been doing it wrong for 30 years. Congratulations. Might not want to say that again. Right. Oh, <laughs> so and, and the, there's and definitely, the there's got to be respect on both sides of the table to understand. And you're absolutely right. Like there are houses that are a hundred years old that are still standing that do not meet today's design standards. We can't, we can no longer design them that way. I was in a barn last week that like an old farmhouse barn that was recreated for like crafts for, for like toddlers and young kids. I was there for my, my niece's birthday and I'm looking at the house and I'm like, I can't believe at the barn. I'm like, I can't believe this thing has stood for a hundred years and it makes you feel good about everything that you designed today. Cause there's a lot more belts and suspenders. There's a lot more standards. There's like the beam in the house was, um, undersized. There was a clear hinge in the sidewall that wasn't braced by a ceiling, like there all those sorts of things. Well, that's just an affliction of kind of coming from where we come from though, right? You you can't walk into any public place or, or private place and at least take a quick look around and, and, and say, eh, I wouldn't have done it like that. But um, but but it is nice to see and, and to be able to appreciate that it is doable in a, in a way that you might not think, you know? So keeping that open mind, definitely huge to relationships throughout the process and just a successful project you know if, if everyone's always combative with each other then uh, it can tell you how the result is going to be and it's not going to be good quick break from the show thanks for tuning in to design development we're trying to help as many people as possible so if you could subscribe and leave a review on today's episode on whatever platform you're listening it would be a great help it's the only way we're going to reach more people let's get back to the show I want to pivot to your career journey. I, there's, it's a known, it's a big conversation in today's society that the labor force is is almost retiring, right? And there's a gap in, in labor. Your team leads a pretty big labor labor team has been a premier subcontractor in Greater Boston for a long time, and you yourself started your career as a as a framer. 
So I want to talk about the college dropout from UMass Amherst who, who went into the, a career in framing. So take us back to, I, I think you studied wood technology and materials. So what did you think you were going to college for? Like, what, what did you see your career as? Uh, so initially, back in 2004, I, I transferred from Mass Bay, which it was Mass Bay Community College at that point, into UMass Amherst. I was undeclared. Actually took a class on energy efficient housing, which who knew that that would be quite as valuable as it actually has become. So it was the one real class that kind of stuck with me, and and it wasn't necessarily about construction per se. It was you know the the theory behind insulation and condensation and using the environment to benefit the the building itself. But it was really the one class out of all of them that I could really pay attention to and actually meant something to me and I, you know, truly wanted to go to that class every single time. So that led me into the, it was called the Building Materials and Wood Technology Career or Degree Program. A little bit of a cumbersome name. I think they've since revised it to Building and Construction Technology, I believe, BCT. Did you build a lot as a, as a kid before college? Like, were you framing or anything before then? Not really. I worked as a landscaper. I scooped ice cream. <laughs> but my father was in construction growing up and all through our lives, my parents were always buying old houses and restoring them. And then we'd move on to the next. I don't think we ever stayed more than three years in a single in a single house. So, so that kind of piqued my interest and it was something that just kind of made sense to me. So I spent a few years in the program got to my junior year and realized like I wasn't really sure if that's the path I wanted to go. So I actually, like you said, I dropped out, came back home and I started framing. I grew up in Rentham, Mass, which is right next to Plainville. A couple of my buddies worked for Sean Lee. They said, yeah, come on, come come frame with us, you know, jump on our crew. So, you know, it always seemed like a, a, a cool job to have, you know, you put up this building and, and step back after a week or two and you, and you look back at it and say, wow, look, look what we did, you know, it's, it's something out of nothing, you know. So I spent a couple of years as a framer. I became a foreman running a crew. And then after, I'd say, probably five or six years, I was had an opportunity to jump into the office as an estimator, which was a huge, huge part of to getting to where I am today. But it was, it was something that I really liked, you know, I'm a compulsive counter. It, it allowed me to take advantage of some of the schooling that I had already had um, with computers and plan reading and understanding. So then from there, after a few years in estimating, I, I tapped our then operations manager and, and our senior project manager. And I, I said, hey, anyone ever gone on to project management by way of estimating? And they kind of looked at each other and the senior project managers kind of looked at the operations manager and said, Ha, I'm getting them back. Because, <laughs> because really, coming into estimating, I got pulled out of the field, which is a tough proposition. You know, there's, I don't want to say there's silos, but I mean, if you got strength in the field, it's tough to give it up and, and, and bring them into the office where you're not going to take full advantage of Especially it, you know? if you're a foreman running crews, like you're a, a valuable person in that operation. And then so to jump to another area created a hole there. Right. But I'd like to think, you know, contributions were made on on all ends you know so between having the field understanding and then gaining the the understanding of the estimating process and and really how our scope of work is really kind of brought together it really did lend itself well to stepping into a project management role and i'd, I'd say there might be four people in our company it's 100 
about 130 people in our company. Probably four of us have actually graduated college. Uh, sorry, I skipped to the end. I, I did eventually. <laughs> you did. You did go back and get that degree. Yeah, it, it only only took 16 years, but but it, it I was well. That. Thank you. I, uh, it was well worth it, though. You know, finishing it out. You know, I I might not turn that into anything else, but having that and and continuing the learning process was was definitely a, a good move, and uh, it didn't necessarily allow me to get to where I am today because it's all of all of our guys really have, have kind of worked their way up through the field. So, you know, not to say that it's there's going to be a glass ceiling put on anyone by not getting the degree, but definitely the clarification. Yeah, it was a good path for you. You got something out of it, but it's not to say that college is a one size fits all solution for every person. No, absolutely not. Especially with the, the prevalence of trade schools. Like when I was in high school, my high school had previously been a trade school. They had an auto shop, they had wood shop, and that kind of fell off and, and they kind of pivoted away from that. And then the vocational schools that were in the area, they, they didn't get much attention or anything like that. But, but nowadays you're getting waitlisted to get to vocational schools. So it, it's really, it's really good to see. There's a, a new, a, let's call it a renewed interest in, in trade. So you're seeing a, a higher application rate at these trade schools. Yep. Yep. You almost have to fight to get in, which is great to see because ideally it revives some of the, the lacking labor force that we have, but remains to be seen, but, but no, there's definitely a, a higher interest and yeah, there's, I think not enough spaces for kids who want to go into the trade school. Keith, tell us about the advantages or the, how valuable your field experience is when it came time to be an estimator. Yeah, that's a, a huge advantage. Most of our estimators have come up through the field. Right now we have four estimators, three of which came through the field. And it's actually, it's invaluable that you know, the, you can read a set of plans, you can see the details, but without knowing actually how those three-dimensional objects go together, it's actually kind of tough to translate. The the fourth estimator, who's actually our newest, he's he hasn't come through the field at Shaw Lee. He, he worked for a home builder, custom home builder down in Rhode Island. So he does have a little bit of a benefit, but seeing it you know, the way Sean Lee does it is different than say a custom home builder. You know, we're, we're production framers, big commercial buildings, but knowing, knowing the actual steps, especially on the labor side of things, you know, anyone can count up sticks and, and sheets of plywood, right? Think, thinking intuitively about it. And I have a shared, shared past in the steel industry. I, I worked in the shop and in the field before I was an engineer. And then I did run estimating for, for Renz welding for some time. And the advantage I felt like it had is it gave me a better eye to identify risk in things that wouldn't go so smoothly or things that would take more time or expensive details that were going to be a pain to build or that just simply couldn't be built and that we're going to have to manage. It, it helped me reduce risk. Yeah. That's the classic one. You know, when we do our takeoffs, we do full soup to nuts. I always say the only thing we don't count is nails. So, you know, every last nut, bolt, shear wall hold down, threaded rod, wall, lineal footage, every sheet of plywood, every tube of glue, everything's accounted for. In addition, the, the labor side of things, we give a, a set amount of hours. Like this is the projection on how many hours this section is going to take. And, you know, some of our better guys in the field will take a look and say, no way, you didn't give me enough time to do this. And, and then they'll work you through it, whether it's a site condition thing or, you know, you, you used our typical productivity. It's great product. that you've created that feedback loop. I, I would say that's a flaw in a, in a hurdle for a lot of subcontractors is the estimator is making assumptions 
in the field is executing and then they never debrief after because the field guy don't don't be upset that the estimator misunderstood how long it took M- make sure they understand now yep so yeah we we always try to keep the lines of communication open sometimes it gets not combative but you know a healthy level of disagreement let's say but yeah it could be site conditions it could be we got to frame this floor but hey ps you forgot we're looking at 16 foot walls here so it's not just move around your eight foot step ladder and and put your bracing in so yeah the the vast knowledge our project management team you got guys who have been here for over 30 years um and some might say you can't teach old dogs new tricks but you know for coming up through the field they've been taught quite a few new tricks and, and they've done well with it but they bring with them that vast experience and and they can tell you at a sniff if you're on the right track with whether it's a labor productivity or a material count or crane rentals or equipment rental durations and stuff like that so it's great to have such a good group that has been with it for so long and there's just kind of automatic checks and balances as a result you know no one's afraid to speak their mind either so having it be an open conversation and you know some people stick to their guns but I think the the smarter and better people will take a step back and say, all right, maybe I wasn't looking at it right and and just try to make the correction that way. What are the keys to success for a project manager? The project manager is there to pave the way for the field. You know, the field is doing the heavy lifting and the the real time, whether it's issues that come up with the plans or the GC needs stuff moved or, you know, something that pops up on the day-to-day basis. Whereas the project manager to me is really lays the groundwork and then puts out the fires as they come so that the field team can do what they need to do and do it well. On our end of things, from our point of view, our project managers, you know, they review shop drawings to make sure that they're as accurate as possible and framer friendly as possible, you know, and then just having conversations and being able to work things out and just develop relationships with the clients and with other subcontractors. To me, it's it's kind of an amor- amorphous role where they're doing some of the help with design. They're obviously handling the requisitions and finances of the job, the RFI process. So they kind of attack it from a lot of different angles. And I don't know if it's ever been fully categorized because it's just so all encompassing. You know, if the super's not there, they can step in and, and, and be the super and, and run the guys for a day if needed. But having that 30,000 foot view is absolutely paramount that, you know, super sometimes might not understand why, why my PM make this call. And then maybe it might take a few weeks for them to realize, oh, okay, now I get it. You know, it's, it's really just for the greater good of the project. It's easy when you're in the shop or in the field to like cast shade at the manager or the estimator for not, but sometimes you're too close and you, you don't have the luxury of the 30,000 foot view to know where we're trying to go. It is really hard. So our, our parent company, UFP Industries, so I've actually had the benefit of going on some plant tours uh, fairly recently. And one thing that I've mentioned to the guys that I'm walking around with is, you know, I, I want to get some of our guys in here because it's so easy to be on site and have a wall panel that, you know, the, they left the sheathing off and they stacked it up and sent it out to the site. And, you know, you're, you're in the field and you think, oh man, how could they mess this up? But to really appreciate the scale that they're doing this at. I mean, to go into some of these plants with the, the automation that they have and just a, this sheer quantity of uh, wall panels and trusses that they're putting out, you know, you, you, you almost become, you, you realize that you're more surprised that more stuff hasn't gone wrong. You know, it's so easy to focus on the bad, but 
while they're doing so much good stuff out there, really. And, and for the project manager and UFP, so is there a sister company that's producing the shop drawings and the panels that you guys have a, a partnership with, or are you outsourcing that to several different companies? How does that work? So most of our components come from right from UFP. They have a pretty high capacity at this point. So really all our wall panel needs and our trust needs are met by them. So yeah, within their companies, they have a design department that you know, some guys will specialize in wall panels, others will specialize in the trusses, and they'll come up with all the designs and then translate them to, you know, full construction drawings, and then they'll get sent to the shop and the shop will uh, pump them out. So the project manager also works, yeah, closely with them to develop the schedules and make minor tweaks along the way. You know, it could get through the design team review, it can get through the project manager's review, and then out in the field they realize, hey, you're building all these walls wrong or you're building the trusses wrong. So it's the final catch of being able to make corrections and and continuously improve it as the project goes on. You can start to see UFP strategy in in purchasing large framing subcontractors in different areas of the country. It almost gives them better feel for what the demand is in the industry to feed their supply. It's almost like guaranteed pipeline. Yeah, a, a little bit of that, and also just the um, the shared knowledge between the two. You know, we we can always kind of ping and pong off of each other, and and ideally make our, make each other better. You know, through just seeing how everything's working. You know, I'm thinking about being a project manager. You have, uh, I'm sure, a, a lot of jobs going on at once. You have over a hundred framers. Sometimes you're bringing in subcontractors. I think you have field operations managers, so they're coordinating with a field operation manager. How important or how often are project schedules or delays like really creating challenges for the subcontract? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's all kinds of different aspects to that. So there's the, the, the labor aspect with delays, with jobs running into each other. It can really put a stress on us being able to use our own guys. Maybe we'll have to subcontract out a little bit more work if, you know, say a, a large project pushes out and, and now it's hitting at the same time as a, another large project, you know, it can really stress the our ability to, to staff the jobs. We've been able to kind of move on the fly and, and get it figured out for the most part over the past few years, but it always it's always a challenge. You know, the whatever we're talking about with pre-con with general contractors, there's always something, whether it's, you know, permitting or they found a a three-toed spotted frog on the site, you know, any any number of things could impact the actual start date. And so you have to trust what they're saying, but also, you know, maybe measure it a little bit and say, all right, well, let's build in an extra month there because, you know, there's actually two levels of post-tension slab, not just one. So it's going to take them actually a little bit longer than maybe they're anticipating. So yeah, it makes it really tough on that end of things on the on the labor side. It's a delicate balance for your team because there's a cost of inaction. If you get too conservative, then all of a sudden you have downtime and downtime costs a lot of money when you have that large of a crew. And I I know from my experience in steel, you start to get, you see a lot of backlog, you're going to be busy all summer. And then you have a job that comes in and you're trying to be the long-term partner to say like, Hey, I, I don't know that we can get this done. We don't have the capacity. And then July comes along and everything got delayed and you could have done the job anyway. And you're like, I'll never make that mistake again. We just got to figure it out because the downtime's too expensive. Yeah. Sometimes it's it's really tempting to almost overbook and kind of extend yourself just to, to make sure that something's falling into that time zone where you can make sure everyone's staying busy. And then if things push out, then you'll figure that out down the road. Um, and then 
it was it didn't used to be as big of a problem, but the with delays, the the material and the pricing, you know, it, it used to not be uncommon for us to get signed up for jobs eight weeks prior to us being boots on the ground. Tough to prepare for that. Well, that was actually what we were used to, and it wasn't all that bad because you know when you're that close to starting, then you can kind of lock in your material pricing. Is that stick building, or could you get shop drawings and panels? Out to the site and that type it of thing. It would stress the design department a little bit, but in general, they could. They could usually pull it off. The designers are a little bit more stacked up now than than they were, I'd say, back then. But now you have people who are buying jobs out six months in advance, eight months in advance, in some cases, almost a year in advance. And that's a kind of a scary thing, you know, coupled with, you know, if we think a job starting in two months, it jumps out to eight months. Uh, the whole landscape of the, the lumber market and the materials market, you know, could go way out of whack. And you know, we could be looking at a big loser when we thought we were, you know, kind of sitting pretty. Prior to COVID, there was a, a narrow range that lumber traded in, you know, so sometimes we'd have a small win, sometimes we'd have a small loss, but in general, it would kind of keep a balance. So it's starting to come back to a little bit of a, a normal point right now, a little bit higher than typical historical averages, but the volatility has kind of come out of the mix. So little bit easier to to look down say four months six months away and say all right yeah we think we're going to be in a good spot that and that should be fine but yeah the the hectic nature of covid and what it did to the lumber market was just it was ruthless that was a very unique point in time like i don't know that we'll see that type of uh inflation and pricing like i I heard of some people saying you have to lock in your order we'll tell you what the price is when we deliver yeah and i was like how is that at all reasonable, but like that's the type of lever they had. The demand was so high. Yep. And I mean, it, we, I think we're ideally out of the woods on that one, but it, you know, it's going to stay in the back of everyone's head for a long time. You know, the, the risk that delays present, it's very real. Keith, I'm going to, I, I want to wrap up with two points here before we get into what we can expect next from, from UFP and, and Sean Lee. Two things stick out to me today. One, and I'm passionate about this considering my background in steel and the trades is to reemphasize for anyone out there that's considering whether you have a degree or not, a, a, a career in the trades is a very rewarding and can be lucrative career. I would say you want to build your technical skill, but also build your, your personal skills, your management skills, your negotiating, how you communicate, like continue to invest in yourself regardless of the path, regardless of whether you went to college or not. Like lifelong learning is the key. And so keep investing in yourself. There is infinite career opportunities within the side contractor world. It's a, it's a high demand. It's getting in more demand because there's people leaving that industry. So where there's, where there's friction, there's opportunity. And I would encourage everyone to take a good look there. Yeah. And on, on that point though, that's, you know, there's a degree and that's ideally proof of learning, right? But there's endless opportunities in this day and age to, to continue learning. Even if you, maybe you'll get a certificate at the end, maybe you won't, but you know, the, don't let that stop you from continuing to pursue avenues of learning. You know, it can be there's endless free opportunities online. There's, you know, paid instructor led stuff, but you know, just the, the possibility of learning whether or not you get a degree at the end of the day, that's not the important thing. The important thing is that knowledge is gained, right? Mm-hmm. I could care less about degrees. It's more about it. the quality I look for most in people. Are they naturally curious? Are they interested in continuing to learn? Cause that tells me what they're, po- that's what's possible. 
If you never learn, you can't be taught. You just got to be interested. The second point I'd like to, and sometimes as builders or engineers, we talk about efficiency, price is always, cost is always a big topic in these conversations. And like we said, the site, the, arch- the layout of the building, the architectural details, those can all drive price. I think it's important for builders and engineers to understand just because something is the most cost effective or the cheapest doesn't mean it's better, right? Like some of that additional cost is money well spent because it drives better value for for the entire development and, and architects can have a good, like a good architect is going to understand where that money is spent well in the framing to create a differentiated. Yeah, that that's important. And it's tough from our point of view, you know, if we're on the expensive side, it might take us out of contention for a project, but directly to your point, I mean, from our small world of, of framing, Advantech sub floor sheathing, you know, that's a, that's an upcharge that is worth its weight in gold. You know, you're not going to go back and make repairs. Typically, mold is less of an issue with Vantech, and you're not going to get swelling, so the finished product's going to be better. Um, 100%, that is an upsell, but really, it's it should become the norm, and it kind of is a lot of, in a lot of cases nowadays. They're definitely the premier, most common product that I see yeah, out there. Yeah, and it's a great product. So, you know, it, it's a pleasure to put in, and... Yeah, well worth well worth the the extra spend there for sure. What is UFP up to today? I think they have some big plans for for Sean Lee and continued expansion. What can you share? What can we expect? So they, I mean, they are such a diversified company. They have locations all over the globe, and they're you know constantly on the forefront of innovation. It's it's really amazing to see what they do. They do everything from our end of things, the the labor, the components that we put up. They're the largest buyer of Southern Yellow Pine in the country, if not the world, which goes into their treating process, fire treating and uh, preservative treating. They also have packaging. They have labeling. They make custom CN, CNC machine crates for uh, specialty items for defense contractors. Like the amount of things that they do is unbelievable. I love that you brought that up. I, I never even thought about that being a big sector in the wood industry, but crates for shipping. Yep. So that, so there's actually three different segments. There's UFP construction, UFP packaging, and UFP retail. And the amount of different businesses within those segments is, it's really unfathomable. You do all your research, you can punch them in and, and there's going to be stuff that comes up that really surprises you. Yeah, yeah, big time. So from my, our kind of smaller point of view within that, that larger group, they also have recently acquired a company up in New Hampshire called Atlantic Prefab. So they do a lot of light gauge metal work, which sounds like the opposite of what we do, but... There are some definite similarities and synergies that go between the wood world and, say, prefab light gauge wall panels and, and floor systems. So we've done some light gauge work in the past. As Sean Lee, we're we're going to look a little bit more to that, kind of balance out our volume with with the light gate or with a light wood frame stuff. And then with all the new products that are out there, between CLT, which has taken a little bit to gain some traction, but I think that'll continue to pick up. Do you see your team getting involved in CLT install? Yeah, we've, we've done one that was just a small elevator shaft, two or three stories, but with whole floor plates, definitely would like to get into that. And then, you know, always trying to innovate and improve upon current processes. So one of the big things that we're working with UFP right now is with our, you know, the components side of things is prefabricated floor cassettes. So 
you know, they'll, they'll produce the actual trusses themselves, but then in the factory, they'll apply the subfloor sheathing and you'll put it up in big groups, approaching a modular type of mentality, but not fully modular. Like you might see the big boxes going in, but really just trying to take as much of the production work off site and then bring it on site and, and limit the amount of time you're spending actually on site. That's definitely going to be huge and something we're going to look to, to try to work on and capitalize on coming in the near future. Very interesting. And I imagine that really becomes a benefit on the larger jobs where you have more repeated floor plans. So like consistency and base size is going to be important for putting those cassettes together, right? Yes. Yep. Do you ever, something we did in the steel world for building a supermarket, a warehouse retail where it's long span, metal joist roofs and uh, metal roof deck, we would often build like a mock bay, like when these buildings get uh, repeated we would build a mock bay just like three feet off the ground so that we could panelize and essentially build these floor cassettes or roof cassettes on the ground with, so we'd have a crane going in a lull. We'd use the lull or some sort of site equipment to like just build this this exactly perfect bay and then we'd pick up an entire bay of a roof at a time and drop it up there. Is that something you ever do in the wood world? Yeah, somewhat infrequently now with the, with the tight sites. Sometimes you're not afforded the real estate to, to work like you'd like to, but in the past, we used to do that a lot. We'd pre-assemble large dormers on the ground, large cupolas, in some cases, loft floors, like an apartment building with the, where the upper floor has a loft area. Put together as much of that as possible on the ground, and then you're just dumping it up there, and it, it's good. It's done good to go. We try to do it, but yeah, not, not often. Like conditions can space. make that challenging for sure. Your view with the light gauge, so Atlantic Prefab was the company UFP bought, and as Sean Lee, you're going to be working in sync with that supplier to start increasing your light gauge structural system install, right? We're doing like, you're talking about structural bearing walls and the floor systems that go along with it. Yeah, kind of that symbiosis that we have with with the wood truss plants, um, you know, use their knowledge and expertise to know what jobs to target, but then also ideally as we land these jobs, then we're going to try to fill the plants and, and let them, you know, supply us with, with what we need and really just kind of same thing, work together and, and develop efficiencies and, and, and make it a good thing. You know, I think it's a wise investment in the new England market. You're starting to see some suppliers increase supply. Some erectors present themselves, a few developments get created, but if we go down to even the Mid-Atlantic or to the West, uh, West, like Denver area, light gauge structural systems are much more commonplace. They're used on every block practically. It's like the primary building type. And you don't really see that in New England because the supply isn't here. So without the supplier, the known entities or the trusted partners that can do it, that presents as risk early in a development. So Somebody like your team who has relationships, who is a trusted entity that can deliver, I think is going to see success with bringing light gauge structural systems into the new. That's certainly the hope. That's the hope. That's the goal. Keith, thank you so much for joining Design Development. It's been great to learn more about your journey and everything going on at Sean Lee. I think the insights into the wood construction world are going to be a benefit to everybody getting it through the lens of a, a framer and a subcontractor. You see things differently than say a developer, a design team, or even a general contractor. So those insights are super valuable. Uh, I wish you, everyone at UFP, Sean Lee, nothing but the best. Thanks again. Same here. Thank you. Appreciate it. And great talking to you. 
everyone. Thanks for tuning into Design Development. Real quick before you leave, our goal is to help as many people as possible. We're a growing community and you're a big part of it. So just click that send button. Send this episode to a friend to let them get those same insights that you got today. We appreciate you. See you next time.